The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Yes, it is. It's time to get in the ring with DJ D. Kooks. Danny Kukler here. Um, and I have a very special guest with me. He is a great wrestling historian. He has the Great Crowbar Press Archives Facebook page and Twitter page on the internet. The Great Interwebs where he posts great wrestling news clippings and great resources. Um, he is Scott Teal. Scott, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing just great, Danny. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate you inviting me on. Yes, I'm doing a lot more wrestling history pieces since we are looking, since, you know, everything hit the fan, and I don't really want to look, review empty arena wrestling, even though, even though it's weird. It's, it's really weird right now. Uh-huh. I don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. In fact, I, I, I really haven't looked. I don't think I've watched maybe three or four wrestling shows since around 1981, 82, something like that. Wow, that, that, that is really interesting. Um, <laughs> but how did you get started in the wrestling business? Well, I was at a uh, girlfriend's house in 1968, and uh, she invited me over to uh, have dinner with her family. I was, uh, let's see, I guess I would have been about ninth grade then, and then she invited me over to dinner, uh, lunch, and we're at the dinner table. I knew nothing about wrestling. I think I had seen one clip of wrestling, and I, best I can remember, it was a guy named Sailor Art Thomas. Man, this guy was built like you wouldn't believe, and he did this thing where they played the drums and his chest muscles would bounce up and down. You know, it was really cool. But that's all I remember about wrestling. But anyways, I go over to this girl's Wasn't house. Was Sarah eating. Thomas an African-American wrestler? Yes, sure was. Sure was. He was probably had the best body of any any pro wrestler ever uh, at that time. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't say, yeah, I'd say ever. He was, I mean, he was absolutely built like nothing you had ever seen before. I mean, it was, it was just incredible. Yes. But continue on. I just want okay. to ask that question. So anyways, we're eating lunch, and I guess we started about quarter to one. And one o'clock, everybody just gets up from the table, takes their dishes in another room, and disappears. And I, I looked over at the girl I was with, and I said, what is going, where'd everybody go? And she says, oh, we're all going in to watch wrestling. And I said, wrestling? And she says, yeah, come on. So we went in the living room and sat down and of course, I knew nothing what, what what was going on, and man, what I saw absolutely captivated me, and I was hooked from then on. I mean, I didn't miss a show. In fact, they showed pro wrestling on Saturday, I want to say Saturday night, uh, like at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, and then they repeated the show on another station on Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock. And from that point on, I watched it. I watched the show twice every week. As long as I was in Florida, I never missed it. So you're originally from Florida? Yep. And that's where I grew up in a small town called Bray. Well, it's not so small anymore, but it's called Bradenton, uh, just south of Tampa. Wow. So you were watching championship wrestling from Florida with Gordon Soley. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The first show I saw, Gordon, of course, was commentating, and they had the great Malenko and Hans Mortier. But the thing I remember that really hooked me was Jose Lothario. Uh, well, actually, I believe it was Wahoo McDaniel came out holding Jose Lothario, like holding him up. And, Jose, and Lothario, uh, no, it must have been Joe Scarpa. Anyway, Joe Scarpa was all bloodied up. And they were helping him out to the, st you know, to talk to Gordon. And he was crying. He, he said he was talking to the gladiator who was Ricky Hunter, who was a mask wrestler at the time, a big, big superstar down there at the, during those days. 
And what had happened is the fans had taken up a collection at one of the shows and bought Ricky a wristwatch. And the storyline goes that Joe Scarpa caught Malenko and Mortier in the dressing room taking the watch out of Ricky's, uh, the gladiator's locker, and they were going to break it. So Joe was crying, going on stage. He's going, I tried to stop him. I tried to stop him. I couldn't stop him. They got the watch. And I'm telling you, you talk about soap opera. It was fantastic. And I didn't miss it from then on. Like I said, I just, I was hooked from that point on. And I watched championship wrestling from Florida uh, for the next six years. And uh, that was for just before I moved to, uh, six years later is when I moved to Tennessee. And then did you find out about Tennessee wrestling? Well, uh, before that, uh, I started, uh, I discovered uh, a couple months after I discovered pro wrestling, I discovered magazines. I was a big comic book fan and every week I'd go to the drugstore and I'd buy every single comic book that came out. Right. And while I was there, they have a big selection of wrestling of magazines. And I noticed one day they had a wrestling uh, magazine called wrestling world. So I picked it up and took it home and you talk I, that was the greatest thing ever wrestling magazines i read wrestling magazines you know everyone that came out i bought just like the you know uh watching the tv show and then uh one day i got it up uh, i think it was 1970 i thought you know what there's not a whole lot of coverage on florida in these magazines it sort of bothered me you know and uh, everything was about bruno in new york and california and so one day I wrote a letter and I talked about the great wrestling in, in Florida, how great it was and that they, I wish they'd had more coverage about, you know, in the, in the magazines. And this was wrestling review that I wrote to. And sure enough, another month or so goes by and here's my letter actually published in the magazine. So that wow. was my first, yeah, that was my first published piece in, in a wrestling magazine. You talk about excited. <laughs> that was so cool. And, uh, I don't even know where I got the idea, but, uh, well, I met a guy named Koatiki. He was a wrestler, uh, underneath wrestler for there in Florida. And he was going, he, he worked later on for Ann Gunkel up in Georgia. I met him. We became good friends. He was training a guy named Bill Dexter and Bill and I became good friends and we all hung out together quite a bit, quite often. And, uh, somehow I don't even remember. It's been so long ago, but I got the idea of taking pictures at the matches. So I bought a nice camera, a Mamiya Secor and 35 millimeter. And I mean, a, yeah, is that right? 30, I guess it's 35 millimeter. I can't remember what it was. We don't use film anymore. No, but don't. <laughs> sure don't. Yeah. So, uh, but I got a nice camera and I went, started going to the matches and I started to learn about uh, matches being held in some of the small towns in Florida, Arcadia, Winter Haven. I never went to Lakeland, uh, but Fort Myers, uh, Wachula, a lot of the tiny little towns around Bradenton had pro wrestling. In fact, they even came to Bradenton one time and I'll never forget sitting in the, in the bleachers there. They, I, I don't think the bleachers are five feet from the ring. They didn't even have ringside on one side of the ring. The building was so small. It's an old armory. But anyway, I started taking pictures and I learned that, uh, if you carry a bag that looked like a wrestler's bag with my rest, with my camera stuff in it, I could walk up to the door and just sort of nod at the guy taking tickets, say, I'm here to take pictures. And, and they just put, usher me in. So I didn't, I didn't have to pay, <laughs> which that was so cool. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't have anything to do with the wrestling office, but, uh, you know, I wanted to take pictures and started, then I started writing for the magazines and sending magazines into, uh, some of the magazines like big book of wrestling, uh, wrestlers, wrestling guide. And, uh, I actually got paid $25 every time I sent in an article with pictures. And so that, that was pretty much how I got my start in, in, in pro wrestling, just, uh, freelancing, uh, uh, articles for national magazines. I never had anything to do with the uh, actual promotion in Florida. I never met, uh, other than just, you know, when I was first became a fan, you know, I went up and I'd get autographs from Eddie Graham, Briscoe, and a lot of those guys, you know, but I never actually met them and, you know, sat down and talked to them or got to know them on a on a first name basis or anything. But, but anyway, the magazines, that was really kicked off my start. Uh, sometime around, well, it was in 1972, I started publishing a newsletter called, uh, 
the Tampa scene. And inside that newsletter, I printed information about what was going on in the world of wrestling in Tampa. Uh, the results, every match that happened, both television and, and the house shows, uh, little things about what happened on TV and uh, in the national magazines, they had a, they had what they called fan club corners and they would list people's name and their address. And they say, so-and-so is looking for pen pals from Texas or pen pals from Pennsylvania. Uh, so-and-so has a bulletin called California wrestling report. So anyway, I sent in the information to the magazine and sure enough, they put that little ad in there and it was in there every month. Scott Teal has Tampa, the Tampa scene for sale, 25 cents. Uh, write him at this address. And I started getting orders from, I mean, from everywhere. It was really cool. And after a few months, I changed the name to Florida Fanfare because I had learned that there was uh, wrestling in places other than Tampa. When you're a wrestling fan back then, uh, if you're just a real casual fan, you don't realize they have wrestling in Tampa on Tuesday. Uh, Miami Wednesday, Jacksonville on Thursday, Tallahassee Friday, Orlando Monday. You think it's just in Tampa. And when I learned there was wrestling in other towns every day of the week, I mean, I, it, I thought that was the coolest thing. So I started publishing the results in those in that uh, newsletter and subsequently changed it from the Tampa scene to Florida fanfare because it covered the whole state. Right. And, you know, like – how would you get these results? Would you actually go to the matches or would you, would somebody phone you in on, on, on the results? Would, would uh, you some, some of it I, at the drugstore, when I go down to the drugstore every week, uh, they had newspapers from St. Petersburg, Miami, Orlando, and I just leaf through the, through the magazines and write down the results, or I'd go to the library. The library carried a few of those newspapers from around the state. So I'd go to the library and write down the results. Uh, I can't really remember how I got some of the smaller shows, you know, like, like I said, like uh, Winter Haven, Florida, or uh, Arcadia, unless I just somehow found out about it. Sometimes on the uh, Championship Wrestling from Florida TV program, they would announce, they would say, we're going to have wrestling this Saturday night in, in uh, Wachula. And and I'd go to those shows, and while I'm while I was there taking pictures, I'd write down the results of the matches. And but I had pen pals too from all parts of the state. People in Miami would send me results and programs. I had a guy in Orlando. In fact, the guy in Orlando, I wish I knew where he was. Uh, we corresponded for five six months. He used to send me the Orlando program, and I would send him the program from Tampa. And uh, that was my first really correspondent in Florida. Uh, but, uh, that's, that's pretty much how I got, got those results. And during that same time, I was corresponding with people all over the United States, uh, in people in Texas, one of the guys, uh, Jim Lancaster, uh, he wrestled, uh, in later years, but he was just a fan at the time he lived in Dayton, Ohio. And he used to send me, I mean, nice uh, write-ups on the matches in Dayton, Ohio. And, uh, Jim's probably one of my oldest friends as far as wrestling correspondents go back in those days. And fortunately we had the opportunity to meet when he came into Tennessee years later and, uh, make a few towns together. And, uh, since then we've, you know, become friends and we stay in touch fairly regularly. I was about to ask uh, any notable people you've, um, corresponded with. And you said Jim Lancaster, that, that that's very interesting. Yeah, it was cool that that he went on to have a career in pro wrestling, and uh, he came to Tennessee. I don't remember. It may I may have. I guess I realized he was coming to Tennessee. I used to go to the office, uh, the wrestling office, uh, when they finished booking the cards for the week to find out who was wrestling in the town, so I could do my pro, do you know do the lineups for the my Slamogram Arena programs. And he was coming through there one one time and. Uh, I don't know how we got in touch with each other. I may have just gone to the matches and saw him there. And we ended up making a couple trips to a couple small spot shows. He was managing the bounty hunters at the time as before Jimmy Kent came along. And, uh, we went to, I remember we went to Columbia, the, uh, bounty hunters or wrestling, the McGuire twins. I don't know if you're familiar with the McGuire's They were big, big guys, you know, uh, sort of a haystack Calhoun type characters, but they were, they're probably the heaviest uh, pro wrestlers, you know, in, in the history of the sport, pretty much. How big were they? Oh, 
five, 600 pounds, I think. If, uh, and that wasn't just hype, you know, they, they were pretty much legitimate, you know, uh, really heavy guys. They were huge. Damn. They weren't tall, necessarily tall as they were, you know, wide. <laughs> I guess <it's> just... <laughs> <laughs> that 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 that's actually really funny. Um, so, anything else you recount from Florida? Uh, yeah, a couple interesting stories. Uh, when I was uh, doing my uh, newsletter, I found a guy in Tampa uh, who owned a newsstand in Tampa, and a friend of mine that was helping me with the newsletter that lived in Tampa. His name was James Brown. And James found this guy and talked the guy into putting my newsletter on his newsstand. So the guy sold my Tampa scene newsletter and Florida fanfare later on a newsstand. I didn't learn about it until later, but Eddie Graham apparently saw a copy of it or somebody found, saw it and gave him a copy. But apparently Eddie was not happy whatsoever with it. It wasn't that I said it. It wasn't an expose. Uh, well, it wasn't an expose as the type of expose you think of as as like became the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, where they told what was happening behind the scenes. Mine was strictly results and who beat who, who attacked who on television, you know, what the feuds were. But the, the expose part of it was it let people in Miami Beach realize there was wrestling in Tampa, and a lot of times the guys wrestled the same guy in Tampa that they did in Miami Beach, and likewise people in Jacksonville, and people in Tampa, people and they say, "Hey, this no, people no, they didn't want the fans to together." Yes, they didn't want fans to know that kind of stuff. You know that the, you know, Jack Briscoe wrestles Paul Jones in Tampa, while he also wrestled him on Wednesday night in Miami, Thursday night in Jacksonville, and then they may have been in either Fort Lauderdale or Tallahassee on Friday. You know, it, it was sort of as an expose on the business that why would these guys wrestle every single night of the week? You know, so so I heard Eddie wasn't real happy about it, uh, but uh, I never, you know, never got any pushback from it in any of the shows. Uh, when I went to Tampa, I took pictures a few times, not a whole whole lot. Usually, I took pictures at the spot shows. Um, I didn't want to, uh, I guess you say, impose myself too much. Uh, get in the way of anything, especially in a big venue like Tampa. Small, small spot shows. I didn't, you know, I wasn't as inhibited about doing some, you know, about going up to the ring and leaning up, taking pictures and all that. But I was sort of, you know, I, I didn't like doing it in Tampa as much. I took a lot of pictures in Sarasota, which really is where I took most of my pictures. I, I just Bradenton is just uh, the next town up from Sarasota, so I went there every time they had wrestling, which was usually once a month, once every other week. That's really interesting. Um, so, where did they run in Tampa? Fort Homer Hesterly Armory. And how much an old building they... they'd been running there since the uh, at least the 30s, I guess 1930s. They'd been running in that building. And how how many people did that that hold? Oh boy, I'd have to say maybe five thousand, four to five thousand. And they packed it out. I mean, I, I know, you know, you hear guys all the time tell their story and it's always, yeah, we packed it. We sold out every show we were on and that's not the case, but they packed out Fort Homer history army more times than they didn't. Uh, very cool. Very cool. So you moved to Tennessee uh-huh. and, and what, what were the differences between the Tennessee wrestling and the Florida wrestling that you noticed? Oh, it was night and day. Florida was mat wrestling. I mean, those guys, even the heels, man, they could go. They could wrestle. Uh, it, w- it was very strictly uh, c- competitive style pro wrestling. You know, you, you, they'd get in there and you'd believe that they were really going at it, trying to wrestle each other. I mean, they, they'd do their dirty stuff. They're, the heels would do their dirty moves and pulling hair and all that kind of stuff. But uh, for the most part, it was wrestling. When I came to Tennessee, it was a completely different animal. I mean, it was punch, kick, a lot of comedy. Uh, it was just something totally different from what I was used to. I didn't mind it, but it did. It was just, it was hard at first to get used to it. Although I didn't come to the matches all that much in, in Tennessee for the first year. I went a few times to take pictures of a couple, of the, few of the guys I knew when they'd come through uh, once, or just, or I'd just go once in a while to take some pictures for one of the magazines. 
and uh, and got to know a few of the guys that were there. Uh, at the time, I was going to Trevecca Nazarene College, uh, majoring in music. And uh, so I was pretty busy at school, but I, like I said, I did go to the matches when I, when I had an opportunity. Right, you were a music major? Yeah, sure was. I played, tr- uh, I, my major was music education, and I uh, got my minor in trumpet performance. On, yeah. Ah, so you were a music teacher. I My brother's a music teacher. Well, that's what I planned to do, but uh, as things turned out, uh, I met my wife, uh, future wife, in uh, uh, at Trevecca. I was in my my last year there, and she was in her first year. So when we when I graduated, I thought, you know, we'll just we got married shortly after I graduated, and we decided that w- that we would just I'd just stay. Uh, w- I was working for UPS part time. United Parcel Service, and right. I thought, well, I'll just keep working for UPS, and then when she graduates in three years, and I can decide where we're going, we can decide where we're going to go. If I want to teach, you know, what school I want to teach at, try and find a school to teach at where we want to live. And but as it turned out, I got a uh, on it with UPS full time, and it was a great job. I thought, uh, you know, I'm just going to hang with this, and I'm so glad I did because it gave me a we got. Gave me a great living, and now I've got a great retirement and uh, enjoying my great benefits too. Here. What's that? Great benefits too. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that was the best decision I ever made. It sure was. I didn't know that. So my my brother's a music teacher at, at a Catholic high school in the Philadelphia area. So. Yeah. So. Yeah, I didn't. I, I didn't. Didn't miss it. I mean, I I love music still, and we. Go to go to the symphony and musicals and things like that. Still, you know, but uh, uh, I guess if I, I I don't know that I really would have enjoyed teaching all that much. To be honest, I didn't enjoy my uh, student teaching, and I definitely didn't like marching band, which is you know I, that would have been part of what I had to do. I loved more the performance, the symphony, uh, playing in the orchestra. Uh, or directing the orchestra I enjoyed that kind of thing but I didn't care for a lot of the other you know like I said like the marching band that that type of thing right 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 that's very interesting because because my brother enjoys both aspects so right so good I, I caught I caught I caught on to that I had to ask you about that because because actually it goes along with my story as well because my brother's in music education was good and my sister is going to be my sister is a music education major as well. All right. She's wow, you got music in your family. So it's yeah. very much in my family. Um, Good. So, um, what? So it was very punch kick, punch kick, punch kick. Um, um, the Tennessee style wrestling. It took you a while to get used to, but once you got used to it, did you fall in love? Oh, I'd always been in love with pro wrestling, whether it was wrestling or whether it was punch and kick. You know, I, I it didn't bother me. I just loved being around it. And probably, I, I think the thing that attracted me most, uh, and I'm talking about from the very beginning, uh, when I first discovered pro wrestling, not it wasn't necessarily the wrestling, although I love that. I love the competition aspect of it. And uh, But it was more from day one, in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, you know, because I because I had friends at school when I first discovered it. You know, I got talking about it and I say, you know, all that stuff fake, don't you? And you know, I'd say, oh yeah, yeah, I know it, you know. But yeah, that didn't matter to me. It was so cool. But what fascinated me the most was all I could think was, how do they do this? Who is it that tells these guys to win or who who has to lose? Uh, you know, how do they determine how they do this? How do these matches? How are these matches laid out? Uh, who who's running things behind the scenes? You know, it was the background information I wanted to know. That that's that's just something that just intrigued me, and that's really I would say more than the wrestling. That is what carried me through the years to the point where I am today. I mean, it just I always wanted to know more, and that's really why I started doing. Uh, writing my books in 1990 or magazines in 1996. I wanted to know more about it. And uh, I mean, I knew everything about it, but not knew everything, but I, I had been in the business. So I, you know, I was smart to the business for all those years. So it wasn't like I was wanting to learn anything, but 
I was wanting to learn more about the wrestlers' careers by 1996 and letting other people know what the wrestling business, how the wrestling business really worked, because it was already exposed. The Observer had been around quite a while. Right. You know, people knew what was what. So I wanted to have these wrestlers tell their stories in their words, you know, so that people can understand how the wrestling business worked, what happened behind the scenes with, you know, with whoever, you know, I was writing about. Was there a resilience at first with some of these wrestlers? Like maybe like a Jody Hamilton or like a Soli? Uh, not at first, uh, not with me. Uh, the, the whole reason is when I went to work, uh, in, uh, 1976 for Nick Goulas, the promoter here, uh, they, he accepted me, I mean, open arms. He told me, you know, Scott, he says, I want you to do publicity for me, pictures. Uh, he said, I think you'll do a good job for me. He says, and what he did is he asked me to ride with him one night shortly after he asked me to come work for him. He called and he says, would you ride to Chattanooga with me? I said, well, sure. Uh, man, you talk about feeling Made, made me feel how good that made me feel to have the promoter ask me to ride, you know, make a trip with him. And on down, on the way down there, you know, he knew I was smart to the business, uh, but he gave me what I like to term the wrestling facts of life. And he said, Scott, he says, when you come, come and work for me, he says, you've got the run of whatever you want to do. He says, I, I like your work. He says, you can go in and out of the dressing room. He says, you're, you're one of the boys. I mean, that's what he told me. He says, you're one of the boys. But he says, one thing, please remember, he says, never tell anyone else about what goes on behind, you know, behind the doors of, of pro wrestling, in the dressing room, in the office. He says, all that is kayfabe. He says, you don't. And I said, I said, thank you. I said, that's absolutely the way I'll be. I said, I've never exposed the business to anybody. I said, even when I was just a fan before I knew anything about the business, I never shared that kind of stuff with anybody when I learned. And a lot of the stuff I learned was through osmosis from being around the boys, you know, until I actually got in the business. Uh, but I learned a lot of it before then. And uh, so it was pretty cool. But that that's the really the thing that stands out the most about the, that earliest time in the business was making that trip with Nick and him reading, uh, reading me the uh, wrestling facts of life. <laughs> yeah. And. That, that must have been amazing to be on that trip with Nick Goulas. Um, um, what what were your impre first impression of Nick? Oh, he was. I, I love Nick. He was great. He tr always treated me nice. He, I mean, he always treated me well. I had heard the stories, you know, the guys talking about what a cheapskate he was, and he cheated people and. Yeah, yeah. He 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 did a lot of that. I'm sure, and uh, you know, but. Then again, as I get got older and uh, understood more about the business, uh, Nick Goulas was making fifteen and twenty-five dollar payoffs in nineteen sixty-nine, nineteen seventy, nineteen seventy-two, three. But then again, Jerry Jarrett was making fifty-dollar payoffs in nineteen eighty, eighty-one, and that wasn't much better than twenty-five dollars back in nineteen seventy. <laughs> no, you know? it wasn't. And the wrestlers will tell you the same thing. You know, they all, no matter who it is, you know, what, who's promoting, most of the wrestlers will say, ah, oh, he was a thief, he stole, and he did this, he did that. And I've heard it about uh, pretty much every promoter in the world, you know. There, there's a few, you know, you don't hear as many bad things about it. Paul Bosch, for one. Uh, Don uh, Owen up in Portland. Yeah. yeah, you know, you don't hear much bad about them, but there are guys, man, I've heard guys rip, rip both of them uh unmercifully for things they did you know so but it's just you know your perspective and you know just a personal situation they had with that you know with those promoters but nick was great to me he treated me i mean just almost like a son he really did um i'm looking at some of your titles and these got you've written books with a who's who <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things you asked, that's right. And I didn't finish it really, um, about whether the guys were reluctant. Uh, when I, the first stuff I did was actually a newsletter called whatever happened to, and that was in 1996. And that's when I started doing the interviews with the guys and, and they would actually really open up with me about their careers. You know, they didn't hold anything back. 
um, the first five issues of whatever happened to there is pretty kayfabe because I had no intent, even though the observer was a big thing by then, I had no intent to expose the business to anybody through a printed newsletter. And so they were sort of kayfabe, just letting people know what happened to these different wrestlers, you know, that had disappeared over the years. And as time went by over those first few issues, the wrestlers were telling me, they say, you need to go ahead and tell more of the story. Tell the story like it was. Don't worry about exposing anything. Everything's already exposed. And so I came around. Uh, granted, there there were guys that, you know, still had a problem with certain subjects, you know, or saying, telling certain parts of the business. I guess the most uh, uh, one most frequently came up, and I've only had a few that didn't want to talk about it, would be about the use of the blade. Uh, you mentioned o Ole was an open book. JJ was an open book. Jody Hamilton was an open book to a point. Jody didn't really want to come right out and use much techn uh, wrestling jargon, you know, kayfabe, uh, uh, carny type language. Uh, uh, but we, but he did, you know. And <laughs> something he he told me one story, and there was a, he he didn't want to talk too much about the blade either, if I remember right. And there was one story he told me, and it was sort of like one of those stories, like he had told me there's some things he didn't want to talk about in the book. But one of these stories, either I did it on purpose or uh, didn't even think about it, and it's, it, it went through. I published it in the book. And after the book came out, Jody emailed me, and of course, he was. we were just learning email at the time, and he says, I want to thank you so much. This, and this is just sort of what he what it, what I remember him saying is I want to thank you the book is really good you covered everything in such detail I think it's so great but you talked about this and when I see you, I'm gonna rip your head off <laughs> I mean he, he was saying it in jest you know but I thought that was that was pretty funny but uh but other than that no most of the guys are were open books uh except like I said just a, a handful who wouldn't talk about certain things like blading like why is blading such a uh, touchy subject? Well, I think the use of the blade was one of the last things uh, really exposed. I mean, it had been exposed back, you know, 2020 and with uh, Eddie Mansfield and, you know, things. I mean, Roy Shire, all, they had all talked about the blade. In fact, the blade had been talked about in the 50s and 60s in, in newspaper articles. But... It was something the guys just felt was more uh, sacrosanct than than any other subjects, like you know, working a match or uh, you know things like that. I think it was just something that was just went a little deeper than uh, what what most fans knew about pro wrestling, even if they knew a little bit of something. And it was sort of like the last bastion of kayfabe, and the, the wrestlers I think were just a little bit. Uh, some of the wrestlers are just a little bit wary about going into that territory. Yeah, and it's like a psychological thing. Like, why would you hurt yourself in that? Yeah. Era? So I, I sort of get it, too. Like, why would you cut yourself in your head? I don't know, you know? <laughs> you know? Red, mean, red means green is what they say. Red means green. Talk about your experience with Stan Hansen. That must have been really cool, writing a book with him. Yeah, that was pretty neat. You know, it's funny, but a lot of these books, uh, uh, several of the books, I guess I should say, really stemmed from the book I did with Ole Anderson, the, my first actual book, right? first full-length book, because uh, it was right when we were in Charlotte. I mean, we had a line backed up from our table for three full days. I mean, it never let up. We signed books. We sold every book we took. And we took like 10 books of 10 cartons, like 25 books. We sold like 250 books. But that line never let up. And during that weekend, both JJ and Ivan Koloff came up and asked me if I'd be interested in, in writing their books. Uh, of course, I was Man, that that would just meant so much to me because they were both to me huge names in the business. You know, those are guys I really really could respect uh, based on what you know their accomplishments. So it was nice to have somebody like that come up. And then a uh, year or so, a few years later, uh, Stan 
uh, got uh, Stan had pretty much gotten out of the business, and that's why he decided to write a book. He didn't want to write one, you know, before that because he didn't want to. He was still very kayfabe. I mean, up to the very end and, and into writing the book. He's another one that's that did just did not want to write about the blade, and the, you know, it was a little bit of push and pull at times with Stan. Not much, but just uh, occasional things I'd ask him, and he he'd like. Oh boy, oh boy. I don't I don't know if I want to talk about that. <laughs> you know, he was still in that 70s mindset. And I, and I was too, you know, still for the most part, but I I realized that the sto- the information was out there. The business had been exposed and nothing that I got or to ask the wrestlers was going to expose anything more than what was was already being told. And my thought was if the story is going to be told and people are going to expose the business, then I want the people to expose the business. So the people who were in the business, who knew the business and understood the business rather than people who weren't in the business thinking they know something, telling all these stories about, oh, they did this, they did that. Because uh, so many times they, they don't really know all that much they're talking about. So that was my thinking, get the guys telling the stories themselves. So it came directly from the horse's mouth. Um, Stan Stan was great to work for. I mean, he, he sent me, I mean, a great manuscript. And of course we worked on it, worked on it. I sent him like a hundred some pages of questions based on his manuscript. And we ended up with twice as twice of what the, what he originally sent me. Uh, so he was real, real good to work for. And what a nice guy. One thing I learned about Stan and I've learned this in a lot of different cases, Stan as a wrestler was one of the most hated men. He was absolutely crazy, wild, arrogant, uh, you name it. But as a person, he is a real person in the world. He is one of the most meek, nice, uh, what word am I looking for? Humble men, I think, that I've ever met in the wrestling business. He doesn't believe his own hype. Uh, He is just shy, you know, somewhat shy as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we were at the Gulf Coast Wrestlers reunion one year, and Stan was there. And I, 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 at the time, I was emceeing their show. I was doing magic and comedy between all the variety acts they had. And I asked Stan, I said, Stan, I'm going to do a card trick, and I'd like you to come up here. And all I want you to do is come up, and I'm going to have you pick a card. And uh, that's, that's pretty much it. He hemmed and hawed. Oh, uh, I, 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 uh, 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 I don't know if I, I don't know if I could get up and do that. I, 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 can you find somebody else? I'd rather not. Here he, here's a guy, and I told the people that day when I got up there to do that trick, I said, I asked Stan Hansen to help me with this, but he was so bashful about it doing it. I said, here's a guy that has wrestled in Japan before tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in his underwear, and he was afraid to get up here and help me do, help me do a card trick. <laughs> But that was that was the honest truth. He was so nervous about getting up there just in front of his peers, you know, the other wrestlers, and helping me with a card trick that that I just didn't. I said, "Don't worry about it. I'll find somebody else." But I, just, I always thought that was funny that Stan was, you know, the the big mean guy, rough guy he was, and he was afraid to get up in front of uh, about 180 people. Yeah, you wrote books with Rocky Johnson and Stan and. Uh... Tony Atlas, too. Yes. And those books are fantastic. Well, thank you. Oh, you got a, you got a copy of Rockies before it was pulled off the shelf, huh? No, I heard the great things about it. Okay, okay. Yeah, because yeah, it didn't go, you know, it didn't last very long on the shelves because I, I don't know the whole story behind it, but it's problems the publisher had with That's the only book I didn't publish myself is the Rocky Johnson book, and they had so many, the publisher had so many problems with Rocky that they decided to pull it. So uh, it's a shame because it is a good book. I, I really enjoyed working on it. Yeah, and you also wrote a book with Tony Atlas, too. Yep. Tony's a salt-of-the-earth guy. I, I love Tony. He's just so nice. And we had a lot of fun working with his book. And I learned a lot of things uh, I didn't know from talking with him and uh, a few things I di- wish I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> but yeah, that was quite that was a lot of fun. Too. Um, With who? Jeff Baldrin being one. Yes. Yeah, Jeff Baldrin, uh, two books actually. One was based on 
uh, a series of interviews that uh, were done in, uh, want to say Fort Lauderdale, where a group of six fans like Jeff and four or five other guys would uh, uh, bring in uh, a name wrestler and they'd go to a restaurant, have dinner, and then they And then uh, the other book is uh, Bowdrum the Booker, which is a reprint of his um, Bowdrum the Booker um, articles that he used to publish in the Observer way back in, the, I believe it was in the 90s. Yeah, and the first book is Breaking Gate Babe, Dinner with Wrestling, Legends of Wrestling, which yeah. you, would get, you would get different legends in. Um, sorry, I had to repeat that because you broke up a little bit there. Um, but yes, but Jeff Baldwin is a great friend of the show. Good. Jeff's a great guy. I feel for, for him, what he's going through now. He's really going through a tough time with chemo yes. and all the things he's going through. I just, we just got to remember, keep him up in our prayers. Keep him up in our prayers and keep fighting, Jeff. We love you, man. Yep. We do. I'm a good friend of Barry Rose too, so. Barry's great. Barry's yeah, Barry lives up in my area, so. Oh, okay. I never understood why he moved up there. I, I thought he'd always live in Florida. <laughs> yeah, talk about some of your compiling books, how you put those together. Like, you have the Alabama in 1931-35, the history of the greatest wrestling ever, history of Nashville wrestling in the Garden, the complete history of Sam Munchnick's Missouri State Championship, book yes the uh the missouri state championship book was written by roger deem uh roger uh had a love for st louis wrestling and the history of the uh, missouri state title belt and that's what that book is about it's uh a great history book but it's got a lot of quotes and information that came directly from the pro wrestlers themselves that held the missouri title and people who were on with the st louis promotion uh, that and then there's another compilation book uh, by Vern May. It's the wrestling uh, history of pro wrestling in Western Canada, and it's about the Stu Hart promotion, how he came to start his promotion, and all the results that took place, all the different, or not the results, but all the all the different little promotions that came into being in Canada. Not you're talking hundreds of promotions. It's amazing to wow. read about them all. But the the main books that I'm that I'm continuing now is my uh, great, what I call the great wrestling venues, and the first one was on Madison Square Garden, uh, and I take people all the way back to the turn of the century when the first wrestling matches were ha- held at the Garden, and all the way up through uh, present day, uh, uh, we, you know present day when we pub- when I published the book, uh, the second one of course was Nashville up through 1960. Um, Eventually, I'll be getting back around to the second volume of the Nashville, which will take us from 1961 on up. Uh, and then Alabama, which is Jason Presley, 1931-35. Jason Presley is absolutely one of the top up-and-comer wrestling historians. I mean, he's at the top of the heap right now. He does just phenomenal work. Uh, if I have a question about a Southern guy, I don't know. And, I, you know, I have good resources here for information about the Southern, you know, the guys that work down in the South, man, I email him and he comes across just so quickly, you know, with information on guys that I need. I have so much respect for him. And then the other one is the book on Japan with uh, yes. Haru, Haru Yamaguchi, who spearheaded that one. And uh, Koji Miyamoto. That was really cool because uh, it's the Ricky Dozan years, how wrestling really got its start when it really took off in Japan and uh, I mean, has results from every possible show you can think of for the years when Ricky Dozang was alive. And uh, I, I, I had so much fun with that book. Right now, I'm working on several histories uh, on the drawing board, and I haven't started. Well, I have started them. Uh, they're in some form of completion. I will be doing Tampa, Florida, St. Louis, but the ones uh, that are coming out first will be Amarillo, which is uh, going to be a two-volume set. Uh, wow. Great. And it's got all the matches from the early 1900s all the way from when uh, the promotion was, well, actually, when the, the last funk show, the big uh, 40, 40 years of funk or whatever they called it, 
and uh, it, it it has everything in it from Dory Funk Sr.'s arrival in Amarillo, you know how he got got hold of the promotion, all the funks, all those great years in the '60s and the '70s of the funks, and every so the last single match. What's that? Till the last show in '99. That's I think that's when it was. Yes, absolutely. But it has everything for, for, for all those years. It has program. It'll have program covers, articles from the newspaper, ads from the newspaper. Uh, that's Amarillo. And this week I've been working on uh, Knoxville. There's a guy named Tim Dills in uh, South, Florida, uh, South Tennessee that uh, actually wrote a ton on that. And he's researched most of the results. I've gone through and I'm adding a whole lot of stuff to it. And I mean... Uh, great, a uh, lot of information about George Kazan of the promoter that I know that Tim didn't, but Tim has so much information. It's just unbelievable uh, about every single wrestler, especially in the 60s and 70s, 50s through the 70s that came through Knoxville. We're, we're going to have every every card ever held in, in Knoxville that we could find, uh, ads, uh, newspaper articles. It, it's I just cannot wait. I'm up through 1948 right now. And... Uh, it started in 1905, and it looks like it's going to be two, maybe even three books. Uh, it, it's it's huge, and go, it'll go all the way up through the Fuller years and Blackjack Mulligan after that. So, so I uh, yeah, I have a lot on my plate. Go up to Smoky Mountain. Yep, yep. We go through Smoky Mountain. Not real heavy on Smoky Mountain because I think that's a book that. Uh, really would best be done with with Jim Cornette but we we do cover everything that happened with Smokey you know in Knoxville yes so yeah Smokey will be a book of its own I mean whether I work on it or somebody else does but I think Smoky Mountain Wrestling would be a phenomenal book I'd love to collaborate with Jim on that one uh, in fact that's something I was meaning to planning to contact him about because I'd like that that's something I'd really love to do yes um, that would be actually a really good book or a really good shoot interview. Just Jim Cornette talking about all the Smoky Mountain stories. Right, sure. Just go through every card and talk about how he, you know, how he came up with the idea for the card, the different matches, the the the, the highlight matches, you know, the stipulations, all that kind of stuff. You know, there'd be a lot we could do with it. Yes, it would. It would be a treasure trove, honestly. Yep. Because. He did a similar thing for like 97 WWE, WWF for yeah. k commentaries, and it was phenomenal. Yeah. Yep. There's a lot There's a lot out there, you know, by, that Jim has talked about on, on those shoot interviews about Smokey, but I think it'd be cool to pull it all together into a, you know, some type of book. Right. It would, it would be really cool. Um, to do that um let's talk about your great facebook page and twitter page here for a second um you try to update it every day uh-huh um, yeah it started started out as a uh just a collection of clips um that i got from you know uh, dick steinborn somewhere from about the dick steinborn and his dad and then I started adding a lot of more of my stuff from my own files. And over time, I just changed the name of it to the Crowbar Press Archives. And I present each day, I try and present a new uh, newspaper write-up uh, article ad that's interesting and something different than what you usually read, you know, when you when you read about pro wrestling in magazines or books. Uh, this is more things like wrestlers. Uh, being arrested for one thing or another, r r fans rioting at the arenas, uh, rest, uh, fans having heart attacks during the wrestling matches because they get so excited, all kinds of things like that that most people have never, ever seen. And I've got, I mean, thousands and thousands of newspaper articles about things like that that uh, that are really interesting. And, and I just try and add, you know, add to that, that uh, page every single day so that people every morning, they've got something new to read about past in pro wrestling uh, twitter i did start a twitter account uh, about a year and a half ago and i think i got about posted a few things and haven't done anything since then <laughs> I, but I there are some account. great twitter accounts out there that yeah. do post okay, yeah 
Sorry. Yeah. Oh, that's all right. Go ahead. Sorry, I said there are great Twitter accounts that do post things. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I had more time to do it on Twitter, but it's pretty much with my writing. I'm writing every day. I'm up at four in the mo- four or five in the morning. I'm busy working on books uh, from the time I get up until four or five in the afternoon. I mean, my wife and I will go, you know, we well, when we could go out, we'll go out and eat or, you know, we do things with the grandkids when we can. But if, if we're not doing something, watching television together or movies or something like that, then I'm here at the front of my computer working on my books. I mean, that's what I live for. I love it. Yes. So I basically plugged your whole website. (laughs) (laughs) Throwbarpress.com is where you can find everything. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Everything's right there on that front page. And uh, I've got I got tons of stuff to add that I'll be, and I got a lot of new posters. I actually haven't had time to put online. I've got a lot of videos, probably 50 videos that uh, DVDs that I haven't put up there yet of, of, of things like old uh, house shows that most people have never seen that have never been available before. Uh, I've got a lot of that coming and I'm also working on, uh, I'm backing off of the autobiographies because I just don't, uh, I, some of them I really enjoy. Some I'd much rather be sitting in front of my files and researching things like Knoxville history. I, that's what I love doing, or Amarillo history, or, or whatever Tampa. You know, I love doing that digging and finding these little nuggets of information that people have never heard. You know, that that have never been told before. Uh, that's what I enjoy more than anything. Uh, but I do have a few autobiographies. Um. Uh, that on the uh, in the works that I that I had already planned to do uh, uh, several you know quite a while ago. Uh, the first out will probably be uh, Frankie Kane. I've got a two volume set coming on. Frankie was one of the masked infernos in the '60s, and he also wrestled as a great Mephisto in the '70s, into the '80s. And uh, he is a phenomenal storyteller. And I'm going to present it in uh, interview fashion, just like my old Whatever Happened to magazines, uh, rather than try and rewrite it and make it sound as if he's writing a book. You know, it comes across so much better. Uh, I love my interviews because when you read something in an interview format, you know, I ask a question and it makes the reader feel like they're asking the question and that they're sitting across the table from the wrestler as he tells her story, rather than as opposed to sitting there reading a wrestler's story told on paper. You know, it, it's just a more personal feel to it. So, so that's how Frankie's book's going to be. Uh, I'm also working on books with uh, Joel Goodhart, who promoted uh, the original ECW wrestling up up in uh, Philadelphia. Or it wasn't ECW, but uh, it was you know this, what led to, to ECW. Yes, that's it. And then uh, another book is with Burt Prentice, uh, the promoter in, uh, who promotes regularly in Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, I've done quite a bit of interview work with, with both Joel and Burt. And uh, uh, the main thing right now I've got to do is get them typed up. That's the hardest thing. I just don't have time to do the transcriptions, but I'm in the process of finding somebody. Somebody right now has uh, offered to help me with some of that. So as soon as that starts happening, then I'll be turning these books out pretty quickly. Yep. Yep. Thank you, Scott, for coming on today. Well, sure. Thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it. I love doing these. I really appreciate you coming on and for for Danny for Scott to this was Danny Cooper and that was getting the ring.